Well, I think something always excites me a little bit whenever we start a new sermon series. I don't know what it is, maybe just kind of shifting gears a little bit or moving into something new, but um, it just kind of it gets me excited about what we're doing. And I'm excited to start a new sermon series this morning. This morning we'll be starting a series called The Old You. And uh, it'll take place over the next six weeks. And while we're going through this, we're going to be looking at the first two chapters to Paul, of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Through the course of our study, we're going to face not just the richness of God's grace and mercy in our lives, but also we'll be facing the reality of man's need of a Savior. You see, grace doesn't mean much of anything If we've done something to deserve God's favor, it's only through recognizing and realizing, maybe even ruminating on who we are without God's grace that we see how marvelous it really is. Likewise, mercy can't mean much of anything if we have nothing that needs to be forgiven. And in focusing in on that, we see the same thing happen. We see a richness to God's love in His mercy, when we really allow ourselves to understand it. The problem that we face then as Christians is, how do we identify ourselves as children of grace? How do we allow ourselves to live free of guilt and the burden of our past life without forgetting what grace is? I think in order to do that, to remember who we are in Christ as children of grace, we have to also think on the old us. The Bible gives us this picture of man taking off the old self and putting on the new self. Well, we talk about that quite a bit. What does it mean? Paul does a fantastic job of explaining that in the introduction to in the book of Ephesians. And that's why we're looking at this text. With that problem in mind this morning, I'd like us to turn then to Ephesians chapter 1. And I'll go ahead and read the introduction starting at verse 1, but our focus this morning will just be on verses 3 through verse 6. And I ask that you'd open your Bible there with me, have it ready. Before we read, we're going to pray and ask for God's understanding and uh, revelation in our heart as we, or illumination in our heart as we read this text out loud together. Father, I come to you thankful for your grace and for your mercy. And Lord, I pray as we come together to study this morning, to read your word and to consider what it means and how it applies to our lives, God, that you would be with us each step of the way that you would help us to understand this truth. Help us to apply it to our lives. God, I pray that you would give us a heart that is softened and ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray. Amen. The Bible says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. When we talk about the gospel, uh, I think, let's just pause for a second. When we talk about the gospel, there is a tendency that we have to start with Jesus on the cross. I, I think this has become somewhat of the norm. When we talk about what the gospel means, we have a tendency to run to, I think, the most exciting part, and that is Jesus dying on a cross for our sins. The gospel doesn't start there, though. In fact, our text this morning makes it clear that that is not where the gospel begins. And it occurs to me that the word gospel might be unfamiliar to some of you, and maybe uh, we're talking about different things if we are familiar with it. And so let, let's begin this morning by defining our term. The gospel, I like to think of it as an acronym. G stands for God. Because in the beginning of everything, and this is what our text tells us, before the formation of the world, God chose to save you. Before the world was ever created, before anything was formed or took shape, God already had a plan to redeem us. A lot of people get stuck here. And, and you know, if you look at creation at all, you wonder, why would God do all of this? Why would he create us if he knew that man was just going to rebel? Well, this is what our text is addressing this morning. The gospel goes on to explain that our sin entered into the world and it separated us from God because God's holy. He has to be separated from us. And because of our sin, we have a distant relationship with God. And, and this is the great problem that we're trying to fix that needs fixing. Because the problem with sin is that we can't do anything to get rid of it. Every man, every person who's ever been born has inherited the sin of their father and as a consequence is a sinner. There's sin in their life and there's no amount of good that you can do to cover that up. We're guilty. And there's nothing we can do to take that away. But the PN gospel stands for paid. Because God loved us so much that He paid the penalty of our sin on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to. That's Jesus dying on a cross because the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus died because that's what we owed. He did it so that everyone and anyone who would believe in Him would have everlasting life. That's what I'm talking about when I say gospel. Now, if we think about that, the reality is to be saved, we have to accept this as truth. God, our sin, paid everyone life. In order to be saved, we have to accept that what I have just explained is the truth. If you push back in your memories this morning, loved ones, to the first time that you accepted this as truth, 
push back as far as you possibly can, I want you to ask yourself, when did this start? Because it didn't happen on its own. You see, in order to be saved, it doesn't require convincing argument or an eloquent presentation. First, we have to be convinced that what I just explained is the truth. If you push back far enough in your memories, what you'll see is that accepting the truth of the gospel didn't rely on any person or anything. It relied on the Holy Spirit working inside of your heart to convince you that that truth is actually the truth. That's what our text is talking about this morning. Why? It's actually a doxology or a praise of God, but this is what's going on here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him. Because the Holy Spirit softened your heart to realize that the truth of the gospel that had been presented to you was in fact the truth. This has some major implications whenever we talk about wanting to see the lost become saved. It requires us to face the reality that if we want to see people come to know Christ for the first time, we have to be 100% reliant on the Holy Spirit to do this work. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit to convince the world's heart that the gospel is the truth. Let me shift gears for a little bit. We're going to come back to that thought. Let's talk about what it takes for a person to accept the truth of the gospel. Four C's. First, as we've already talked about, God convinces a person that the gospel is in fact the truth. Second, God conditions that person to apply these truths to their lives. Well, I can accept it as truth, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I've become saved or that I've accepted the gospel. The second part is God has to condition me to a place that I'm actually willing to embrace the reality that these truths have an implication on my life. That I have an obligation to respond to them. And I have to be conditioned in order to do this. And that, again, is the work of the Holy Spirit moving in our hearts. He does so by convicting us of our need of a Savior. Making us realize how desperate we really are. When we talk about our need of salvation, this isn't something that we do as Christians so that we can uh, join, a, join the church club. Or it isn't something that we do as Christians so that we can uh, belong to a certain entity or so that we can, we can uh, study the Bible differently. But it's something that we do out of desperation because there's nothing else that we can do to pay the debt of sin in our lives. When we realize that, we turn to a Savior, not as a fire insurance or somebody to protect us, but we turn to a Savior because we realize there's nothing else that we can do. So first, God convinces, then He conditions, then He convicts. And finally, we find that our faith is certified. 
not by human wisdom or intellection or some sort of exercise where we're trying to figure out who God is and where He is, but it is certified because God has revealed to us these truths and recorded it through history and through this book. Instead of our faith being founded on human wisdom, it is founded on God's power. God's power. If we take a look at our text this morning, and I just want to pay attention to first, a little bit of context. Paul is writing to the saints who are in Ephesus. He tells us that in verse 1. So he's writing to a group of believers, people that have already accepted the gospel. And in his introduction, or as he begins this letter, he starts with what I've called a doxology or a praise of God. And he's telling us who he is. I want to pay attention to the verbs. What is it that we are praising God for in this passage? We praise God that He blessed us. What we find is salvation is the most incredible blessing that we have as Christians. It is a blessing. And in fact, we find that all spiritual blessings come from God. God blessed us, He chose us, He predestined us. All of this to bless us. What an incredible thought. You know, friends, sometimes we get caught up on these words in this passage, and I want to just stop and address some of the difficulty whenever we talk about what it means to talk about being chosen or being predestined. Because somebody this morning, I think, is at least somewhere in their minds thinking, well, I may be chosen. Predestined's tough to accept. I made a choice to follow God. Well, in fact, you did. And I want us to just accept for a moment that these things do not live in contradiction with one another. You know, sometimes whenever we talk about how do we decide... Whether we believe in this concept of election, that God has decided that we will be saved, and this concept that we have free will and that we chose to follow God, how do you reconcile these two ideas together? Can we pause for a second? These things are in agreement with one another. Friends don't need reconciling. We don't have to reconcile these two ideas to one another. They exist in harmony. And uh, the Bible is pretty clear. It's pretty unavoidable. We don't have to turn just to Ephesians 1 to find these concepts revealed to us that God has chosen us or predestined us. It's all throughout the Bible. It's unavoidable. And it is biblically the truth that we are chosen. We are chosen. In fact, when we think about this truth, it is the most marvelous truth that we can take hold of. Nowhere in my life have I said that I've ever loved a person before I've met them. And I've used this illustration before. I couldn't love my children before they were born. I couldn't love my wife before I met her. I couldn't love you before I met you. God's different. God loved us before He even formed the entire world. While things were still being put in motion, God had you in mind and He loved you. 
He chose you. It's a silly thing when we allow ourselves to be offended by this. To be offended by God loving us before the world was formed. I don't think Michelle would be offended if I told her that I loved you before I ever met you. She might be. It might be a little creepy if I said it. But when you're the almighty God, there's nothing creepy about it. All of our blessings come from God. He's in the business of blessing us. All our spiritual blessings come from God. But on top of that, all of our blessings are also coming through God. If you look at each of these phrases, there's a preposition that follows. He blessed us in Christ. He chose us in Him. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And finally, when we see that we're blessed again, it is in the Beloved that we are blessed. We exist and our blessings do not just come from God, but our blessings come through God. What an incredible thought. You know, when we talk about religion or uh, different sorts of faith, this is maybe the most interesting thing that a whole lot of religions don't have much starting with God. A pretty common idea is that man wakes up one morning and he decides, I want to figure this God thing out. It's pretty evident to me that there's a God. Romans 1 even tells us that since the beginning of the world, everything that we needed to know about God was right in front of us, that we could see it. The man wakes up and says, well, I'm going to go figure this God thing out. Because, I mean, I can look at the intricacies in the world and I can see, well, there's definitely a creator. There's definitely some sort of design in all of this. Well, who created it? And so we go out and we try to figure it out. Look at this. Real religion doesn't start with the pursuit to go and figure out who God is. I said that our faith is certified not on the, um, the merits of human wisdom, but our faith is certified on the power of God. Real religion, and the Bible tells us very clearly, begins with God taking the initiative. God pursuing us, coming after us, taking every step that is needed in order to show us the truth, recording this book so that we'd have a history and a historical account, so that we'd have an explanation, so that we can see the hope that was for generations looking forward to what eventually came when Jesus died on a cross, so that we could understand this great mystery that this isn't just for a chosen people in Israel, but that this is actually an inheritance for Gentiles all over the world. I didn't figure that out on my own. No one who puts their faith in Christ figures out any of this on their own. Instead, God comes to us and He shows it to us. He reveals it to us. Isn't this incredible that Christianity doesn't begin by trying to figure all of this out or some sort of pursuit, but it begins with God taking the initiative. It's a staggering thought to really put it together and to realize that our salvation wasn't some sort of historical afterthought. A lot of times we read Genesis 1 in the account that God created this perfect world, and we call it Eden, and there's Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, and life was great. I mean, we look at the real picture of what Eden looks like, and it is fantastic. I mean, they didn't even have to water their crops. 
the land watered itself. The food was provided for them. They didn't have to work or labor. They just had to enjoy glory. Until they sinned. I think sometimes we think of this plan of salvation as kind of a knee-jerk reaction. All right, these frail, fickle humans have thrown a wrench in my plan to spend eternity with my creation. Now I've got to come and fix it. And so here's the plan. I want to raise them up, this generation, through Abraham. I want to give them the promised land. I'm going to promise them a Savior and a King is going to come who will rule with them, and I'll adopt them all as my children. That's not the truth. Look at our text this morning. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Back up. Before the foundation of the world... All of this was decided. The plan of salvation is not a historical afterthought that comes about in response to the fall of man. It's been the plan all along. That means, if you really think about it, as perfect as Eden was, that wasn't the best God had for us. He still had something greater. He had a plan for something greater. He had a plan for something greater for you and for me. And he does all of this because he loves us. Does this not blow your mind? What a love. I mean, when I spend time reading Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and reading the creation accounts and how wonderful Eden is, my first, like, I go there so that I can think to myself, I wish we could go back to that. Why did Eve have to screw it up? Eve's not that powerful, guys. She didn't screw up God's plan. Because God had a plan that He would save us. And the way that He would do that to give us knowledge An understanding of holiness? Well, it required the fall. And he did it so that today we can know him. And we can know how big this love is. God has taken the initiative. He's pursued us because He loves us. Why did He do it? Why did He do it? Our text tells us that too. It's according to the purpose of His will. He did it because He wanted to. He saved us because He wanted to. That means you're not so special that you deserve what God has done for you. It means God's so great. I mean, this is why we can praise Him. This is what, what Paul is saying here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because He wanted to love us. Because He wanted to save us. What a thought.
did it because he wanted to save us. You know, the issue is when we ponder on that for any length of time, our mind immediately runs to, why in the world would God do this? If I'm not so great, why would, why would he love me so much that he would do all of this? I mean, the Bible describes God's response to sin. He mourns for us. He mourns for his creation. He weeps over our failures. Yes, he gets angry at a disobedience, but that anger doesn't come from... I've always kind of thought of anger. It's not really a primary emotion. It's a secondary emotion, right? Maybe God's righteous anger is different. Maybe I haven't had much of experience of that. But he mourns over our failures. And when we do this, we, we're always searching for some sort of reason that's inside of ourselves to answer why we have been given the ability, why we have been given the privilege, why we have been chosen, why we have been made a part of God's amazing grace. But the truth is, if we really spend time just looking at what the Bible says, there is no answer that is inside of ourselves. The answer is simply because God loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him. And that's a real whosoever. Whosoever would believe in him would not die but would have eternal life. Just because He loves you. Isn't that incredible? God doesn't just do it for a purpose in His life, but I think He also does it for a purpose in our life. Look at our text again. The Bible says that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now, it's important that we put this in the right order. Because the issue is not that God saves us because we are holy and blameless. In fact, it's the opposite. He needs to save us because we are unholy and completely to blame. But by saving us, He also gives us the ability to become holy and to become blameless. That's the P in gospel, isn't it? That he pays the debts that we owe. That we are no longer debtors. That we're blameless before him. That we're in right standing with him. Oh, and that we should be holy. That we should be holy. That we should be set apart. That our lives should be distinguished by holiness. Sometimes when we talk about uh, these things which are called the doctrines of grace, that God loves us, that He's the one that started the initiative of saving us, sometimes, and this is becoming, I think, more popular in today's world, and, and maybe in some fake churches or churches masquerading as churches, this teaching that, well, since there is grace and we are children of grace, well, we can go off and do whatever we want and live however we want because, well, there's enough grace to pay for us. And while that might be true, God's grace may be sufficient to pay for the sins of the entire world. There is a major issue in that thinking because the effects of God's grace is that we would be made holy and blameless before him. 
Well, there's a real purpose. That God has done these things so that we can be holy like He is holy. Our response then would have to be to evaluate that. Because God's destined us for more than a life of desperation. I said that without God, we are completely desperate. There is no need, there is no, there is no prospect or ability inside of ourselves to remove the debt that is in our lives as sinners. Without God, we're completely hopeless. There's nothing inside of us that will ever be able to save us. I mean, our real state, if we're looking at the old us, if we're looking in the mirror at who we really are, the old you is desperate. Because there's nowhere else to turn, there's nothing else to do. And God's come to us and He has saved us. He has paid this ransom. He has rescued us. He's offered us this and He's done it so that we would be made holy, so that we would be blameless before Him. And in looking at this, if we really recognize this, if as a church we really see what God has done for us, the thing that we see is that we have to be humble. Because there's nothing in me that can boast about God's works. In fact, even my holiness, I cannot boast about it. I would like to tell you that I'm holy, and I promise the truth is that I'm becoming more holy every day. As long as I am obedient and faithful in God's word, I am becoming more holy each and every day. And the same can be said about you, but I'm not perfectly holy. I'm a work in progress. But even all that land I've covered, all that holiness that I've taken up, as far as I've progressed up until this point, I can't take credit for one bit of it. Because it's God's work in my life that has brought me here. Well, doesn't that keep you humble whenever you think about how to approach the lost in your life? Your friends and your neighbors and your family and those who, if you're like me, you spend time not just praying for them, but you really spend time to commit for the loss that God has placed in your life, it breaks your heart. Because I know what it's like to be that desperate. Well, it keeps me humble to remember that I'm not going to be the one that's going to save them, that it's going to be God. And it gives me a a dignity too, doesn't it? Because in all of this, I don't just remember how desperate I was, but I remember how I'm free from that. I said this passage was a doxology, and it is, and there's a major, major implication in the praise that Paul gives us. That in all of this, that we would be praising God. One catechism is, what is the chief end of man? The answer is, to praise God. To bring glory to His name. And that is our chief end. So we come to the praise of His glorious grace. And then verse 4 explains, again, that we should be holy and blameless. 
What a thing to look forward to. I'll bring our message to a close this morning. But as we think about what Paul is writing to this church, he's writing to friends in the church in Ephesus who are believers, who have been saved. And he starts out this way, praising God because he chose us, because he predestined us, because he loved us before the foundation of the world. Because he gave us a gospel message that doesn't start with Jesus dying on a cross, that doesn't start with your own depravity, but it actually starts... My, my parents used to always tell me before I was an apple in my dad's eye. I don't know what that means. Did I say it right? Before I was an apple in my dad's... My dad's got to go to an ophthalmologist if he has an apple in his eye. Even before that, If you spend time thinking about that, and I pray that you would, God loved you. Not in a general sense. Not as some conglomerate entity that represents His creation, but as an individual. He had a face to a name. He knew you personally. And before you were even formed, before you were thought of, before your parents were thought of, before the earth that you walk on even took shape, before the water was separated from the land, before the sky was separated from the land, He loved you. 